This is the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. On this episode, we have a really fun conversation between Avery Beddoes, who leads our neurotech efforts at Loop, myself, and Dr. Alec Widge from the University of Minnesota. Dr. Widge has a truly diverse background that combines studies in biomedical engineering, computer science, neuroscience, and psychiatry. Given the many intersecting fields from his studies, Dr. Widge takes a unique approach to neuromodulation for psychiatric disorders by thinking about nudging brain networks rather than outright controlling them. In particular, he shares with us his thesis that you want to nudge the brain as a network back toward a certain state that is treatable and adaptable, rather than simply use pharmaceuticals or brain stimulation as the ends itself. And with that, I bring you Dr. Alec Widge. Alec, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Doug. So Alec, we also have Avery from our neurotech team. He leads our neurotech team on the podcast. I'll have him introduce himself in a second, but we'll start with you, Alec. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, just sort of how you got involved in medicine broadly and what your current focus areas are? Absolutely. So I am a computer scientist, biomedical engineer, neuroscientist, and psychiatrist all rolled into one. And what I do now is I am a assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, where I run a lab making medical devices for mental health and specifically focused on invasive and implantable technologies, things like deep brain stimulators, and with a focus on using those technologies in ways they haven't been used before. Thinking about how do we get a hold of and how do we change brain networks to help treat mental disorders. Excellent. I'm excited to ask more questions about that. Before I do, let me turn the mic over to Avery from the Loop Team. Avery, do you want to give a quick intro of yourself? Absolutely. I'll probably be uh, less for accolades than that. I, as Doug mentioned earlier, I run Loop's neurotech team. We invest fairly broadly in early stage neurotech, ranging from Alex territory brain implants all the way to mental health apps and covering most of the space in between. Perfect. Thank you for joining us as well, Avery. It's good to have you on. So Alec, let me ask this, as Avery mentioned, the sort of four fields that you study, it's a very interesting overlap. I think a lot of times when people combine disparate fields, you come up with unique insights. And so by combining neuroscience, computer science, medical engineering, biomedical engineering, and psychiatry, what does that lead you to? What does that help you discover? What we hope is that we're going to be able to really bring into the world and eventually bring into commercial products, bring to market a really new way of thinking about what mental illness is and then how we treat it, how we help people who have these syndromes, have these symptoms. And I guess I would say that our approach centers around two words that both start with the letter N, namely networks and nudges. That is that we like to think about, number one, the way to treat mental illness and the way to understand mental illness and even diagnose it is to think about the brain as not one organ, but as a number of different regions, each of which is somewhat specialized in its function and communicating forming a network and doing computation through that network, that that's something we have to understand and that that's something we have to understand how it goes wrong. 
And then the part about nudges being that when it goes wrong, you don't want to try to shove it into a completely new regime too quickly because that's not how the brain works. The brain is by nature something that changes slowly and that the approach that's going to work better is to work with its own natural change processes and gently steer it over time to where you need it to be. And then hopefully it'll actually stay there on its own. Let's dive into the idea of networks versus regions. And something Avery and I were talking about earlier was a lot of the, I think, stimulation approaches feel like they're very region focused. They're very focused on dealing with a specific region in the brain. And as you just described networks and nudges, you think of the brain in a much more holistic picture of interconnected parts. And so I'm curious your take on why people have been trying to treat the brain in terms of regions and not networks more broadly. I think what I would say is if you have hammers, you look for nails. Or you assume that everything around you is, if not a nail, a screw that can be driven in by adequate application of percussion. The fact is, we haven't had, until very, very recently, tools for actually measuring and intervening in brain networks. So the first revolution in mental health treatment was the pharmaceutical era when we had the anti-dopamine drugs and then the pro-norepinephrine, pro-serotonin drugs, the sort of post-World War II revolution in American pharmacology. Those were incredibly nonspecific. That just floods the whole brain with neurotransmitter and you hope that that's going to get the particular circuit or particular problem that you're interested in. It's And they work. Statistically, they work a heck of a lot better than doing nothing, and they've gotten thousands, if not millions, of people to better lives. So I don't want to knock the pharmacology era at all. I mean, I still prescribe meds every week, but they're also incredibly limited. I like to use an analogy that medications were the era when if something's a little bit off on your computer or your screen, you whack the side of it. And that fixes it in the sense of the external symptom. The color was a bit yellow. It goes back to normal, but that wasn't that your TV or your monitor had smacking deficit disorder. It wasn't that it had a smacking imbalance. It was that it so happens that the percussive force you applied to it got whatever component was a little bit loose to snap back into place temporarily. And in many ways, that's what the medication approach did. That's what electroconvulsive therapy, which is still the most effective antidepressant known to man, that's close to what we think ECT does. Then came this sort of more modern era of the early 2000s and starting even earlier for movement disorders, where we said, okay, now we've got these more focal things. We've got the implantable deep brain stimulator that was developed for Parkinson's disease, but we can extend its use to other areas, or we've got the transcranial magnetic stimulator. The fact is, both of these were technologies that, by definition, they find and they focus on one brain area. They can't record, they can't sense, they can't listen to what they're doing. All they can do is put energy into the brain. And so the only thing we could measure about them was, where are we pointed out? Physically, where is that deep brain stimulation electrode? When we're using transcranial magnetic stimulation, we know the magnetic field comes out of it in roughly a cone shape. Where does the tip of that cone intersect with the cerebral cortex? And so 
as a result of that, we've been very, very focused on where. Where's the target? What's the anatomy? What's the one magic spot in the brain that if you can just hit it, everything will get better? And I will say that's also maybe because a lot of these technologies were first invented in neurology. And neurology as a medical discipline, they're all about where is the lesion. They're a very anatomically driven specialty. That's what you learn in their residency, even when you're a med student, when you're with the neurologist. That's the questions that they're constantly asking you is, hey, if you see a patient and his left hand is weak, but the right side of his face is drooping and he's got this other funny symptom, if you know those three things, where does his stroke have to have been? And you sort of distinguish yourself as a neurology candidate if you're really good at reasoning out the where. I think a lot of that philosophy has just traditionally animated the way we think about brain stimulation and neurotechnology, neurointervention. But where we run into a problem is that that doesn't match biology, that there's no one part of your brain that you think with or that you make decisions with. It's a distributed operation. Your prefrontal cortex, the stuff that really distinguishes us from other mammals, from lizards and fish and birds, that doesn't have one region. If you look at it under a microscope, you can parcel it up into anywhere between six and 30 different discrete zones, each of which seems to have some specialized function, but each of which is also capable of taking over for the others if one of the others goes down, if you get a traumatic brain injury, if you get a stroke. Let me interject here for a second and dig into this. When you talk about specialization, what level of conceptual abstraction are we talking about here? Are we talking about literally like an electrochemical circuit that functions differently and that's the most reasonable abstraction to think about? Or are we talking about a circuit that is specialized to a cognitive function or a circuit that is specialized to a type of thought or a part of language? Like where on this ladder of abstraction does it make the most sense to have this discussion? Well, I think it depends on the brain area a little bit. So for example, there are clearly parts of your brain that they just do motor. That's what they do. You have a motor cortex. If I put a magnetic pulse there, your thumb will twitch. It is where all your movement commands leave your brain and go to your spinal cord. So that you can talk about as, look, this has a function. It does one thing. But then when you get up into the lateral prefrontal cortex, it's like a general purpose computer. If you were to have an analogy, imagine that you're a small company and you have to have a network of five or six computers that run your business. And one is your web server. And one is your email server. And maybe one is doing your database and analytics, but it has to forward stuff to the web server every so often. But then let's imagine that one day the email server just caches fire. If you had to, you could turn to your sysadmin and say, hey, listen, can we just run email off the web server for the next two weeks till we go buy a new email server? And you'd be like, yeah, okay, sure. Your brain can do that. Your prefrontal cortex in particular, yeah, you've got parts of it that are really specialized for making economic decisions or for doing working memory or for saying to the rest of your brain, well, slow down, compute a little more slowly because we're in an uncertain world. But if any of them gets damaged, others can take over and smooth operation requires all of them to be flinging messages back and forth constantly. That's what we really mean, or at least what I really mean when I say thought 
emotion, high complex decisions, everything that goes wrong in mental illness, it's all network. Alec, let me bring in the idea of the nudge then to the discussion. And I'd love to see if you could give us an example in practice of maybe what a nudge looks like and then what effect that does have on the network. And also how that would compare to a shove. So if we want to talk about nudges, let's first talk about what isn't a nudge in the sense that that's what people think of a lot of times when they think of psychiatric brain stimulation. So let's take the example of somebody who has depression. What people imagine is that we put in the brain stimulator, we turn it on, and the person says, wow, I feel happy and that they start to laugh and smile and giggle. And you actually can see that. There are definitely spots in the brain that you can stimulate that you can put someone into a temporary euphoric giggly state. But here's the thing, that's not curing depression because the opposite of depression is not giggly euphoria. If I took somebody who was in a deep depression and I gave them a hit of cocaine, they might go into a giggly euphoria, but that's not treating their depression because the opposite of depression is actually more like a contentment or just a quiet satisfaction. It's not happiness. And so putting someone into a happy state, that's the shove. There's two problems with that. One, that can't last. Think about all of us know this. You cannot be euphorically happy, absolutely over-the-top happy all the time. And not only can your brain not sustain that, you wouldn't want to be. There are plenty of situations where it's appropriate to feel a little down, a little sad, a little disappointed. I mean, imagine somebody who they get told, oh, yeah, by the way, you're fired. And the response is, I feel so happy about that. Or, and this is a real story from a patient, somebody who went to a funeral and said, I don't know why, but I don't feel sad. I feel actually a little bit positive and I'm terrified because what does that mean? Why am I not having the emotional experience I expect to be having? And so that's in many ways what we don't want to do is to just take someone and shove their emotional state to one end of the spectrum and keep it there. Instead, what you might imagine is the person with depression, what's happened is that they are stuck in the negative end of the emotional spectrum. They have trouble getting to the positive end. So you don't want to just drag them over to the positive end. What you want to maybe do is apply a little bit of a push. Imagine you've got a small kid. They're trying to get up the hill on a bicycle, and you don't want them to get off and walk, but you can't bike for them. But what you can do is you can stand next to them and just put that little hand on the small of their back, just very gently take like 10% of the force of gravity away just so they can get started. Or what your spotter does for you. If you're lifting a weight, just giving that little bit of extra assist to get you started and then letting you move the rest of the way on your own. That's how the technologies we're developing in the lab work. They try to not completely change the state of the network, but make it easier for it to move in a specific direction that we want it to move so that it'll kind of wander its way there on its own. Would that then be when something like a behavioral therapy or something like that would come into play? 
there is an exact correspondence between what I'm talking about when I say nudges and what a good cognitive behavioral therapist does. In fact, what I often say to my patients is that brain stimulation is not a replacement for behavioral therapy. It works best as an adjunct to it. What I think about is I make it possible or easier for the person to make a change, but then they've still got to take an active part in their change. And so at least I try, whether I'm doing invasive or non-invasive work, to have all of my patients working with a skilled cognitive behavioral therapist and to actively be saying to them, even when we're meeting for device-related visits, to ask, hey, what changes are you trying to make in your life to help them understand that this is a two-part process. The reason I like to think of it that way, there's two reasons. One, that's a lot easier. It's just technologically, it's a lot easier to bias a system than to drive it to a place that it naturally doesn't want to be. But then when we think about this from the human aspect, my job as a doctor is not to control someone's emotional experience. It's to understand what they see as their best self or what life they want to live, what wellness means to them, and help them to get themselves there. You see a lot when you read the ethics literature or the overly sensational popular press about mind-controlling brain chips will turn us all into cyborg zombies kind of stuff. We don't even want to go there. It's so much easier, and so much easier to explain to the patient. It's so much easier to build public acceptance. If you can say to someone, hey, this device is not capable of controlling your mood, controlling your thoughts. That's not what it can do. All it can do is bias you in a direction that you then have to walk. It's almost like, let me build you a phenomenal foam roller that you can use when you try and improve your squat. I think that's a great analogy. And again, so much of psychiatry is moving towards this model of rather than we define what wellness is for the patient, they define what it is. We try to help them get there within the limits of technology and what we consider ethical. It seems to me to make more sense to just be more patient-centric. As I think about your background, Alec, the cross between neuroscience and psychiatry, I think is a really unique one. And there are obviously fields that are related, but I'm curious from your perspective, spending time in both fields, what each side misunderstands about the other side? What is each side sort of missing by not having experience on both sides? So one of the challenges in getting engineers and computer scientists to talk to neuroscientists, to talk to psychiatrists is appreciation of complexity. One of the things that happens a lot of times when you have someone from the engineering side trying to model or understand psychiatric illness is they say something like, okay, just give me 100 patients with depression and I'll go build a machine learning classifier to classify depression from not depression. And what they miss, and what nobody thinks to tell them a lot of the time, is there's no one thing that's depression or PTSD or OCD or any other disorder, there's 10 or 20 different things that if you just open up 
the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, and you flip to the depression criteria, you've got to have five of nine symptoms. And these symptoms are things like feeling sad all the time, having difficulty concentrating. But then there's not being able to fall asleep or there's sleeping all the time. There's having no appetite and food doesn't taste good, or there's constantly craving food. And especially with sort of the seasonal picture, tending to crave like simple carbohydrates. And what that means is you can have two people who notionally have the same diagnosis, depression, but share absolutely no symptoms in common. If you sat them down in the room and just talked to them, you wouldn't necessarily say that they have the same problem going on in their brain unless I told you that I'd already imposed an external structure that says they do. From that perspective, this is what a clinician can bring to the table, is an understanding of heterogeneity. What can then happen if the clinician talks to the engineer in the right way is to begin to say, oh, well, how can we capture that in our models? So for example, this is where we get back to networks, and this is where we get back to this, what I would call somewhere between a trend and a movement that is often called computational psychiatry or dimensional psychiatry. And that gets back a lot to the idea that I was talking about a few minutes ago of networks. So there's a growing push to say that these words, depression, PTSD, anxiety, addiction, they're not even the right language. We could be talking about instead People who have problems with making decisions that are driven too much by habit as opposed to what's going on around them. And that that explains the person with OCD who is constantly checking a lock until it feels just right. That explains the person with addiction who is taking a chemical even though they are experiencing substantial negative consequences from their use. And it explains the person with depression who's finding every morning that they just can't get out of bed for the first two hours of that day, that maybe all of those come from the same place when we think about it in terms of brain networks, and that that's a way we can start to think about a new science of brain stimulation and of mental illness. But if you just ask an engineer and said, go classify depression, you're going to get something that's working in the old framework and certainly, unless you really have the clinician understand the complexity of modeling that's out there and our ability to really tease these different patterns of behavior apart, the clinician's not going to realize that there's a more sophisticated question that they could be asking. And so that's where you really need people who are cross-trained in these disciplines. And if you then say, I want to build a medical device, especially an implantable battery-powered medical device that's going to treat this network problem, then you need people who can understand the clinical problem, i.e. what's acceptable to patients and to the surgeons who've got to put these things in. They've got to understand the mathematics, how do we quantify and model it, and they've got to know enough about embedded systems to be able to say, okay, what's a version of that model that I can now fit inside a tiny implantable titanium can and run on, say, between 1,000 and 2,000 milliamp hours of battery, which is not a whole lot, especially not when you've got heat and computation restrictions on top of that. That's a powerful answer. And I'm curious, if you tie everything together that we've talked about today, so this complexity that maybe if you're siloed, you don't have as much appreciation for networks and nudges, what has to happen in the industry? 
for us to move in this direction of embracing the idea of treating patients through the lens of networks versus regions? Make devices that can measure networks. It's already happening. I see my lab's job to give industry a little bit of a kick in the pants. So for example, I start out by saying, well, the problem was everybody was basically focused on where's the region and let's put more electricity into that region because we had devices that were dumb. They could talk but not listen. Well, now we have devices that can listen. Medtronic is working on and hopes to have FDA approval next year for a commercial-grade deep brain stimulator that is constantly sensing the local field potential from the brain areas involved in Parkinson's disease. Neuropace has a device on the market that tries to detect that the seizures happening and tries to zap your brain and shut it down before the seizure happens. So there are devices now that can listen. The challenge is that none of them yet can really listen to a network because to listen to a network, you've got to add more slots that you can plug multiple electrodes into that same aggregator device. Just like if you really want to see a wide field of view, you've got to have more than one video port on the back of your computer so that you can actually plug in multiple monitors. So you've got to add more slots, and then you've got to add the ability for the device to actually sense and compute network metrics. So it's one thing to just measure a single signal, which is a squiggly line. But if you want to measure the connectivity between two brain regions, all right, now you've got to do a correlation. If you want to measure the connectivity between four brain regions, which is a typical kind of cognitive network size, you are now looking at all the pairwise interactions between all of those networks. I Now you've got to be computing 12 numbers every time you sample. And there are multiple different ways in which information could be passing, and you might need to be measuring all of them because you don't yet know for that patient what matters. And so this becomes a scale-up problem. Every time you add another brain region, you basically square the number of different entities you need to consider, and that starts to hurt when you have a limited battery budget, which means a limited computation budget. So one of the things we're doing in our lab in collaboration with some electrical engineers at other universities is trying to say, all right, but we know you're going to have to go for the networks and we know some of what the computations involved are. So why don't we build much more efficient processing units that are optimized for that computation, nothing else, just as when we start realizing, oh, wait, people don't want to use computers for spreadsheets. Mostly what they want to do is use their computers to play really complicated games. Suddenly, the graphics card was invented. This is basically that same kind of thinking about, okay, we need better math. We need better chips for doing better brain math is one of the major innovations that needs to happen in the implantable medical device space. That's a great insight. Alec, this has been a really great discussion. Let me end on this question, which is you recently published a paper with Dave Borton. And I wanted to give you a minute, if you could, to just kind of tell us a little bit about what you discovered through that work. So recently, one of the things we did in collaboration with a couple engineers over at Brown University, both Dave Borton as the senior collaborating bioengineer and the first author, this really brilliant young neuroscientist engineer named Nicole Provenza. She's going to be one of these people that 
10 years from now, I'm going to just sort of look at wherever her career is going and say, wow, okay, I was lucky enough to somehow be tangentially associated with you. Remember me when you make it, they're awarding you the Nobel Prize kind of stuff. Anyway, digression. That study was an example of how you can really get a much different kind of information about the brain by listening to networks. So here, we were interested in going after one of those nudge ideas I said before, where we're interested broadly, this is one of the big topics for my lab, in the idea of what makes people flexible versus rigid in their decision-making. That if we could just make people 5% more likely to take that road less traveled by, to do that just this once, I won't have a drink. Just this once, I'll get up out of bed and call my therapist even though I don't feel like it. Just this once, I'll try that thing I'm scared of. That if you add up enough just this onces, that is the road to recovery. So we're super interested in flexibility. And what we wanted to ask was, is there a way to tell just by looking at someone's brain activity, when they're trying to be more flexible, when they're really putting in effort in a way that requires that kind of what we call top-down executive control. And the reason we're interested in this is because in other work, we've shown that we know some brain areas that if we stimulate them, we can in fact make a person act a little more flexibly, but we have to stimulate them at just the right time. We have to hit them when they are trying to make that kind of decision. So now we need to know, when is that? So what we did here is we took a group of patients who were in the hospital, not for psychiatric reasons, but because they had severe epilepsy. And one of the things that happens when you have really bad epilepsy is the surgeons talk about removing the part of your brain that's causing the seizures. And the way they find it is they put in a set of electrodes that give you 100 tiny little contacts scattered throughout your brain, really monitoring almost all the areas involved in cognition and decision-making. Now, they're not monitoring them to look at decisions. They're monitoring them to see where does the seizure start from and where does it spread, just like people track earthquakes with networks of seismometers. But when you've got all those sensors in there, you can ask the patient, hey, why don't you try to do this laboratory task that requires you to be really flexible in how you interpret stimuli that are on the screen? Okay, now why don't you put the task down for five minutes and just go talk to your friend who's sitting at the bedside, or why don't you go fiddle around with your smartphone? Okay, now do the task again. Okay, now take a break. And by doing that, we've got labeled periods where the person's actively trying to be flexible and doing so in a way that requires them to put in effort versus periods where they're not, where they're just kind of resting, doing nothing in particular, but they're still engaged, awake, alert, talking. So what we then asked is, all right, now that you've got these periods, can you classify when that effortful, flexible behavior is happening? And the answer is yes, but not from the activity of any single brain area. If all you do is you feed that classifier the activity of individual brain areas even if you feed it like 20 of them, it can't do it. It can't find when the person's in that decisional state versus not. But if you feed it, the network activity, those correlations between brain areas, then it can do it. And it can do it way better than chance. Different classifier for each person, but as long as it has access to the network and can specifically compute on connectivity features, it can figure out 
when a person's in a decision-making mode. And that would mean you'd be able to build a device that could give them that little bit of extra help, that little bit of nudge or bias I was talking about earlier. I really love this network and nudge concept. I think it's very powerful, obviously, for depression or anxiety disorders. But I think even just in daily life, for a lot of people, we need nudges in many different ways. And it does boil down to this concept of the network and encouraging or at least putting us in the right mind frame, like you said, to perform the right actions. So I'm really glad we got to talk about it today. Thank you for coming on the show, Alex. That's all we have for you. We will definitely be paying attention to your work in the future. Thank you so much, both of you. It's always fun to talk to people about the stuff we're doing and where we think the field ought to go. Excellent. Thank you very much. <laughs>